Good morning, Mill City. Hello to the 11 o'clock. All right. <laughs> that was... Uh, anybody who's brand new with us, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And welcome to everybody joining us online. Glad you're with us as well. Uh, I have four boys, Parker, Cohen, Brooks, and Smith, and Associates, little law firm. And uh, they, uh, they we have t- I have two in college and two in high school. But I remember when uh, they first start making their way into high school, around 8th, ninth grade uh, or so, a little switch starts to occur. And, and it's usually like, uh, I, don't, I don't like that shirt anymore. Like, why not? That's, it's babyish. And so one day it was fine, and the next day it's not. You know, the, and, and, bef- and they're like doing things with their hair and like caring about how they look. You know, before that, they didn't care, even though Jossie was trying to get them to care more. And, and, and so, so it's just this like I'm trying to kind of care about the trends and fit in just a little bit in a new way. I remember when that happened for me when I was in high school and, and, uh, and you know, you just, you just more, become more aware of those things and how to, how to fit in in some ways. And I, I, I grew up in a home where you didn't have maybe the, all the finances to be able to, to buy the trendiest shoes or the trendiest clothes or whatever. So, but I needed some new shoes. So my mom and I went to the store to go look for some new shoes. And I thought I beat the system because I found some shoes that looked like the trendy shoes, but they weren't the trendy shoes. Everybody's looking at me like, yeah, that didn't work, did it? And it did not, because I walked into school thinking like, yep, here's your boy, here, here I am. And, and by the end of the day, I was not feeling like that, because, because my friends were like, what, were those? what are those? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know, nothing. And I felt embarrassed, and I felt pushed out. And I felt like somehow maybe even a little made fun of. And, and I don't know anybody that likes that feeling. That feeling of, of somehow being embarrassed or pushed out or maybe even made fun of. We might laugh it off, but there's something inside of us that doesn't like to feel that way. And I, I wonder if in our day and age, and particularly in our, the culture we live in, if sometimes we might feel like we don't fit in and might actually feel embarrassed or even made fun of for being a follower of Jesus, for believing certain things or, or coming around certain values, and believing in, a, in the authority of Scripture or the saving way of Jesus. And so what do we do? When I was younger, the, the, the goal then was to try and figure out how to fit in. We blend in. And so some people, that's the direction we'll go. We'll just try and, well, we just need to try and blend in. And maybe we'll, you know, we'll just either not talk about this or we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of water this down a little bit and we'll just kind of try and fit in so that, so that nobody thinks that we're different or whatever. And then the other option, which has gained popularity in the last several years, is to join the culture wars and kind of yell at the culture for, for saying what they're saying or it being different than the way of Jesus. And, 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 and how's that working? <laughs> Do we see massive amounts of change? Do we see greater openness to Jesus? I, I, think, I think we see more polarization and division. People believing and having a characterization of Christians oftentimes that for what, uh, uh, regarding what they're known 
to be against or worse, who they might be against. Robert Mulholland Jr., a theology professor and author, wrote in his book, Invitation to a Journey, he says, the church is not called primarily to be confrontive, but to be obedient and faithful to God's presence and purposes in the culture. The result will be confrontive, but that should not be the purpose. Our purpose should be to live out the values and dynamics of New Jerusalem. When he uses that phrase, he means the kingdom of God, the way of Jesus, in the midst of the values and dynamics of fallen Babylon, which means uh, the world and the culture around us, or the idea of exile, being on the margins. And when we do this, fallen Babylon is going to be disturbed. This idea of living in exile is the idea of not being in the majority and maybe being on the margins or pushed away from the center, having low influence and and maybe in a world that's not bent towards a kingdom worldview. The majority of the scriptures were written by people on the margins, not in the majority. First Peter, written by Peter, says... But you, writing to the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, this, this little phrase, special possession, I grew up in a church where we read and I memorized the King James Version. And in the King James Version, special possession is peculiar people, which means you're weird. And so you're a holy nation, God's special possession, God's, you're a peculiar people. So we're starting a series today called Peculiar People. I considered calling this series weirdos, but because, because peculiar is like different, is weird, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Notice how it doesn't say you are a person of God, you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, pay attention, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, when he uses the word pagans in the first century, that wasn't a derogatory term, it was just somebody not uh, walking in the way of Jesus, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. What is He saying as you're following Jesus, as you're a foreigner and an exile or in exile? It's not about going with the flow, but it's also not about yelling at or whining about the culture around us. Instead, he's talking about embodying the teachings of Jesus, that living out and not just knowing them, not just stating them, but embodying the teachings of Jesus, that we would embrace a communal apologetic, meaning not just knowing what Jesus said, but actually embodying it, and not just by ourselves, but together, so that It is actually the living out of and the expression of the teachings of Jesus found in the people of God that then become attractive to and like, hmm, you're different, but there's something about the flourishing of that particular community that as we saw happened in the first century, as it travels into the second and third century, that actually it impacts the culture around us.
David Brooks, New York Times columnist and follower of Jesus, says, he said this in an interview, culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. That's what this is about, about being peculiar people that live this out and embrace the way of Jesus. So today and in the next several weeks as we walk through this series, we'll be looking at the culture that we find ourselves in. What kind of cultural ideas and mantras and, and, and pillars are there of the culture in which we live that maybe we recognize or maybe we don't because we're just in it? So we'll be addressing and identifying ideas like certainty and the fact that we live in a culture of consumerism and we live in a culture of political polarization and a culture of anxiety and fear and a culture of moral relativism. Now, but it's not just identifying, it's actually my goal is to set a vision for who we are and who we're to become. So that in a culture of certainty that we would be a community of wonder. That in a culture of consumerism, we would be a community of contentedness. That in a culture of anxiety and fear, we would be a community of peace. That in a culture of political polarization, we would be a community of unity. That in a culture of moral relativism, we would be a community of holiness. So, each week, well, the title of the message will be something like this, a community of and then fill in the blank in a culture of. And I would add to that or maybe fill in any blanks. If we're going to be peculiar people, it's going to require a radical commitment to the way of Jesus. And I would add to that a renewal and an embracing of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we'll be talking about the embodiment of, and we'll later in the year during the summer be talking about what it looks like to embrace the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So today, we're talking about a community of loving family and a culture of radical individualism. A sociologist was asked, what's a defining trait or characteristic of Americans? And he says, he said, radical individualism. We hear it in the phrases, you be you. You find your truth. True freedom is about doing whatever you want. Now, that has been fueled by and made into a reality by the luxury that we have in our culture of, of being able to live on our own. The reason I say luxury is because it is not the norm for the vast majority of cultures around the world, nor the vast majority of people throughout history. Meaning it required financially or required there was a value around living under the same roof or in the same on the same street or in the same town and most of the time it was they didn't have the luxury of being able to go out and buy their own home or drive their own car so we have the luxury of that then the acceleration over the last several years of working remotely so, so we, we don't not only just live and have dinner and all that kind of, same, kind of thing under the same roof, but now we just work by ourselves, which, which leads us to actually believe that we can live without others. Add to that the digital dynamic of social media where we can be connected to a lot of people, but actually not be in relationship with a lot of people. 
which ultimately leads to America being the loneliest nation on the planet. Some of the loneliest people in the world. In 2018, a survey was revealed that 46% of Americans sometimes or always feel alone. That number today is 61%. In another study, 40% of adults, American adults have zero to one confidant. It used to be four 40 years ago. So we are in, in an attempt to and in embracing of radical individualism, we're becoming actually more isolated and more lonely. And to have a confidant would mean to be, have someone to process life with, to process more, even more specifically pain with, to be able to have somebody to walk alongside you in the ups and the downs, mourn with you and rejoice with you. And so depression is on the rise, loneliness is on the rise, and based on these statistics, I think I could say with some strong conviction that there's people in this room that would identify with those statistics. Maybe you find yourself lonely. I know that I have throughout my life. Find yourself in a place where you're like, I, I, have, I may not look like it. I, you have people around you a lot, but having people around you doesn't mean that you're not lonely. And you long to be in relationship with someone. You just long to have deep friendships and deep conversations. And Maybe if it's not you, I can guarantee that it's somebody next to you or down the row from you or in the house next to you or your roommate or in the apartment complex or in your class and maybe sits right next to you. God has a solution to loneliness. In Psalm chapter 68, it says that God sets the lonely in families. Family, and I would add, because we can say this based on what the New Testament says, loving family is the antidote to loneliness. And we are in need of being in loving family. We need others. Now, in our radically individualized culture, it is difficult to accept the idea that my spiritual wholeness cannot be attained outside of my life with others. That that in order to become who God has called us to become, we need each other. Eugene Peterson, the writer of the message version of the Scripture, pastor for 30-plus years as well as the writer of a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, said, I often found myself preferring the company of people outside my congregation. He's the pastor. Men and women who did not follow Jesus, or worse, preferring the company of my sovereign self. But soon I found that my preferences were honored by neither Scripture nor Jesus. I didn't come to the conviction easily, but finally there was no getting around it. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from immersion and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. That's a hard pill for us to swallow, even as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, in our radically individualized culture. 
Whether we like it or not, we are being formed by the culture and environment around us. And self-spirituality has become the hallmark of our age, which means I love Jesus, but don't love their people. You've seen that bumper sticker. I, 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 just me and Jesus, I'm, we're good. Thank you very much. But you guys can deal with all of those messes. That part is hard. Just me and Jesus, we get along. But that's not what the New Testament writers talk about. The writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself, even Jesus condemned some of the religious leaders of his day for the ways in which they were creating, the culture they were creating around the community of people. But he never suggested that we could do without the community of the people of God. The writer of Hebrews says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. 2024, there's a lot of people I know who have given up on meeting together. It's become a habit. Because the Scripture doesn't say not giving up meeting together unless you have toddlers. Because it's a lot of work to get them out of the house and into the car, and, and especially when it's cold outside. And so extra layers, and then they whine, and you're on your way. And by the time you get there, you're like, this is supposed to be a community of love and peace, and I am definitely not bringing that. <laughs> Don't give up meeting together unless you're working on your PhD or your master's, and you've got a lot of things to study for, and a lot of reading to do, and a lot of papers to write. Don't give up meeting together unless your kids are, are in a lot of extracurricular activities and, and really just doesn't fit in anymore. Don't give up meeting together unless you were out late the night before and you just have had a really long week and you just, you know, it's the best time to catch up on some sleep. Every now and then I'll get a call from a parent in Michigan or South Carolina or someplace and, and they say, my, my son or my daughter, they go to they go to CSU, and um, they're not going to church. So, um, so could you could you fix that? Like, like can you get them? <laughs> oh man, I wish I could say yes. You know, like I wish I was that powerful. I'm like, well, uh, you know, we'll do our best. My favorite is when they say, "Don't tell them I called." So I usually call them up. Your mom called, and I tell the parent I can't do that for them. So I, I just say it. Y- your mom called, and which usually goes really well. And so, but but the more I if I if I have the chance to have a longer conversation, what I found is whether it was sports activities or parents' obligations or work and trips and all the things that essentially, without saying it directly, through the modeling of their life and their weekly rhythm and time and priorities, they taught their kids to go to church only when it was convenient. And so they seem, but they get surprised then when they go off to college or they move and they only go to church when it's convenient, which is never. Because there's always something. Now, I, I wonder if we, you might be sitting here today and, and, and thinking, well, I, I, I believe in 
relationships. So like I, I, I know that like I don't want to live by myself, and so I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm a radical individualist in the way that you're describing. It feels a bit extreme. And maybe that's true, but maybe we just do community in our way. And, and so we kind of want to form the community we want that works best for us. And back to Eugene Peterson, he says, the usual way in which we avoid the appearance of crass individualism is through sectarianism. Sectarianism is to community what heresy is to theology. Sectarianism provides a convenient appearance of community with the difficulties of loving people we don't approve of. A sect is accomplished by community reduction, getting rid of what does not please us and getting rid of what offends us, whether ideas or people. We construct religious clubs instead of entering resurrection communities. Sects are termites in the Father's house. Another word for this in our day and age is tribalism. And we're in a community, but it's not grounded in mutual love. It's actually grounded in mutual hate. It's not who we're coming around that we love. It's who we're coming around because of who we dislike and who is our enemy and therefore who we need to destroy, which is not in the way of Jesus. And it has taken and picked up speed in our day and age because of the rise of loneliness. So I would call this anti-community. So some form of community is better than no community. But it is not the community that Jesus is calling us to. And so I want us to to land in a passage of Scripture. There were so many passages in the New Testament where you can land on this particular subject, but I want us to land in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of the body, all the pieces and parts that are, make our body work well. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. He just mentions a couple, but these were some of the, the tension points in the culture of the day. So we might be able to add to that. We're all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Republicans or Democrats, whether black or white, whether rich or poor. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? What's he describing here? He's describing comparison and the comparison that maybe an ear would have towards an eye. Now, comparison, we sometimes think, oh, comparison's wrong. Actually, comparison is normal. I mean, we would look around and we compare, like, oh, he's taller than, than I am, or she has brown hair versus blonde hair. And so we are regularly comparing. The issue is not comparison. The issue is when we compare and then we envy or judge. And we say, I wish I was an eye. I can't believe that they're an eye like that. And so I can't, I can't be a part of this. But then he goes on 
so I love the honesty as he's coming around this to basically say like, just because you're a body and you love Jesus, everything's not just wonderful. Sometimes the elbow says, I don't like being an elbow. Who loves elbows? <laughs> so he's saying we've got to fight against envy and judgment if we're going to be what we're supposed to be. And then he goes on and he says, but in fact, this is verse 18, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, encouraging trust to be you. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So now he's addressing self-sufficiency. I'm good without you. I, I don't need you. I don't, you, 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 add, you, don't, you don't add anything to my life. Too often we like the idea of community, but when the difficulties of relationships come up, we gone. Like, no, I'm going to go, I must have picked the wrong one. And so you go find another group or you find another church and you're like, I think I'll, I'll go, I'll, this is good. I'm sure it's, it's, it's better over here. And then it feels good for a little while because you get the new car, the new, the new group smell. <laughs> but then you're in that group for a little while and you're like, yeah, there's, man, there's french fries under this seat. Somebody leave some socks in here. And you're like, oh, that person is annoying. Mm. Or maybe there's nobody annoying in your group. There's always an annoying person in the group. So if there's nobody in your group that's annoying, it's you. <laughs> they need you and you need them. And you're like, why do I need them? Because we cannot have loving relationships, loving family, if we actually don't have to work through things. See, too often we think of the spiritual family as not, needing to ha not, not supposed to have any issues. Because my family and yours, I guarantee, we all have put the fun in dysfunctional, right? That was funny. I don't care what you say. <laughs> like we got issues, some more than others, but we all got issues. And the same thing is true of the family of God because we're human and we bring our issues with us and and we're going we're gonna to bump up against one another, and we're going to annoy one another, which is why the vast majority of the New Testament, when it talks about what the people of God are to be doing, it is to be forgiving one another, and bearing with one another, and, and not gossiping about one another, and not creating strife, but making peace, and, and not moving on, but staying, and persevering, and being diligent. It is not about how to best yell at the culture. Because, because I'm convinced that that if we can't achieve this level of peace and loving relationships, even when we bother one another, that our witness to a watching world is blunted. Another word for community is shalom. And the word shalom doesn't just mean peace like it's all nice, like nice and calm. It actually means wholeness. And, and so... We are really looking for community that just isn't like not bumpy, but about finding health in the ways that we interact and relate to one another.
Loving family, though, even though God puts us in family, the lonely in family, loving family doesn't happen by accident. It takes work, risk, and swear word in our culture, commitment. Because we have the fear of missing out. You know what? Somebody, you know, if you get invited or somebody invites uh, you or you invite somebody to a party and, and they're like, maybe. That's code word for yes, unless a better option comes along before then. I got to keep my options, got to keep my choices open. The invitation for us in order to experience loving family is to make a choice to love in a culture that loves choice. That we are going to be like the church described in Acts chapter 2 where it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They devoted themselves to loving family. They devoted themselves to community and to being with one another. And the thing that we long for, belonging, to be seen, to be connected, to have depth, of relationship requires the safety of commitment. Intimacy or depth of relationship only resides in the safety of commitment. But too often we're quick to go when we need to be quick to stay when the difficulty arises. And so in a culture of radical individualism, we place as our highest value autonomy. But you can have autonomy or you can have loving relationships, but you can't have both. I'm not saying you don't have any choice. I'm just saying that you can't, we can't put that as our highest value like our culture does. There's a woman named Bronnie where she uh, spent years caring for terminally ill patients, people on their deathbeds. And after a while, she ended up writing a book called the top five regrets of the dying. Reflections on things she heard from them, things she experienced, how she leaned into that. And from that book, she says, I wish, they, they said, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. The number one regret. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I wish I didn't work so hard at anything. I just wish I was lazier or I wish I, slept in later or hit the snooze more often. That's not, that's not what they were saying and not what she's trying to communicate. It was them having deep regrets from not giving friendships the energy and the time and the effort that they gave to their work. And in my experience throughout the years, not only individually, but also uh, working and pastoring people and uh, for 11 years before uh, planting Mill City Church, working with college students and 20-somethings, was recognizing the way that relationships generally through life move from convenience and need to move towards conviction and intentionality. Meaning, we might grow up and, and be in uh, you know, our elementary friends. They're just whoever's kind of in our class, and we become great friends. And then middle school, that happens some more. And then go away to high school, and, or go to high school, and you have a bigger class. But you just go to the, maybe it's, you go to the FCA group or whatever. Or you, you know, you're in youth group and, and Mill City students, and you've got great friends. Come on now. All right. And, and so, so, but then you go to college and now it's a little harder. And then you graduate from college and, and you're like, and you're in a job with people around you, but you're like, I, I, I love these people, but I, I'm not going to have depth of relation. They're not going to 
They're not my, they're not my people. They're not going to be the ones that are going to be encouraging around what it is that, that God's called me to do and who I'm supposed to become. And so now your everyday rhythms don't create conveniently the relationships that we need. Which means then that, that you have to take the extra effort to go out of your way, sacrifice some time or sacrifice some energy in order to go find and cultivate those that isn't natural. Meaning it's not just, well, I see each other at work every day, so it just starts to cultivate. Like now you've got to like set up a time and you actually got to like show up and you got to, and on and on. And, and so without that intentionality based on conviction, we find ourselves down the road having given our energy and our time to our individual autonomy and wondering where our loving relationships are. Which takes sacrifice. And you don't, and, and, and I, I think one of the ways that we determine what kind of strength of friendship we have is if, like friends that will help you move. <laughs> ain't no, <laughs> ain't, ain't no not good friends going to say, oh yeah, I volunteer for that. Or, or the, the, the friends that will jump on an airplane in a moment's notice because you just say you need them. Jossie and I, before we moved to Fort Collins, we lost a little girl to stillborn. She was born stillborn. And, and so here we are expecting the celebration of new life, and instead we're mourning the loss of life. It was agonizing. It was excruciating. And... One of our good friends, Glenn and Holly Packiam, it was, I think it was 12 o'clock at night, we hear a knock on our door, and there they were. And they brought us some things, and they said, if, you, if you're okay with it, we'd, we're happy to stay as long as you want. Glenn and I ended up sitting out in the hallway, 2 o'clock in the morning, crying, sometimes just sitting there. He wasn't in a hurry to leave, nor somehow make me feel better just there and you know we all need to be seen like that we need the experience of withness and and often that that's what jesus wants us to know he we are seen and we are loved and we as followers of jesus are supposed to be like that see people and sit with people and and sometimes the people who feel like they have no one and we are with and listen. And maybe you are that friend for someone else. You might be like, I've got those friends, but are you that to someone else? Because, because ultimately, we all need friends like that. We all need community like that. I did a little informal survey recently around Mill City and I was just asking how long did it take you to find the kind of community like I'm describing here today? How long did it take? And, and they would, uh, the answers I got were two to four years on average. And I was like, oh, tell me more about that. And I said, well, for, the, for a little while, we were just sitting in the back. Hello, my back row friends. And we'd come up through the back entrance, go out the back entrance, never had to walk by the pastor. I love you. 
But then we made the decision, we're going to like actually go to Mill City Connect. Or on a city group Sunday, we're going to jump into a group. Like, we're going to try. And it began. He said, it wasn't like the next week we found our, it was amazing, everything was done. It took one week, we just had to take this one step. But that one step led to another step, which led to another person, which led to another group. And now, two years later, three years later of stepping in, showing up, and investing, intentionality, we've got our airplane friends, we've got our moving friends. We've got our meet, visit us in the middle of the night if we have to, friends. If it, if it necessitates or if that's the situation. We got those friends. We would do it. They would do it. We got them. And I, I share that to say that I know that there are some people that you jump into a group and, and it's like magic. And I love that. But it is usually the exception to the rule. And so I wonder today if, if you couldn't take that one first step. Not just talking to you back row people. I'm talking to the, some of the middle row Because I know you sit everywhere online people to take that one step. So our weekly practice is not just to find a city group, but it's to find and commit to a city group. Like, like I'm going to go every week. I'm not missing this year. I'm not going for two weeks and then I'm going to fade away because it's not the magical group. I'm, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to work through things. I'm going to lean in. I'm going to, I'm going to. And then it says, you know, this is up on the screen, and prioritize cultivating depth in relationships. Because it's one thing to be there. It's another thing to go there. And so, so that looks like going to a group and maybe that's like, hey, can we go out to coffee? Can we grab a meal together? Would you like to come on over to our house? So let me just give you a real quickly depth of communication and relationship. So maybe an idea of where you're at and where you could, how you could take it to the next level. Number one is cliche. This is like, how are you? Fine. Never better. Living the dream. It's just the, the, the plastic answer. Second is facts. What did you do today? Or wh- what do you do? Facts about the day, about your life, about how many kids, where they go to school, where you work, how it is. The next is opinions. What do you think about? So it's, it's stepping a little further. It's, it's understanding maybe how you think and sharing that way. Number four is feelings. How are you really? Not fine and never better. And, but like, uh, I'm struggling. I'm sad. I'm hurting. And then finally, there's one more level, and it's vulnerability. It's who are you? It's, it's what's going on in the depths. And I would add this to vulnerability, which makes it different than transparency. We can, trans, we can be transparent about all those things, but community is developed when we say, here's who I am, here's how I'm feeling. Will you walk with me? Will you help me? Like, I'm inviting you in not just sharing information and keeping you at arm's length. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you may have seen the movie, read the book, the third book, Return of the King, is towards the end, if you, spoiler alert, but uh, if you haven't seen it or read it by now, and no, no sympathy. So Frodo is taking this ring 
that needs to be destroyed to Mount Doom. And as he's on his way, it's getting heavier and harder. And, and his faithful friend Samwise is walking with him and he's trying to encourage him. And, and, and he wants so badly to give him the ring like to Samwise, who's, do, who's got more strength. And he says, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it, but I can carry you. We need friends like that. That will carry us. Even Jesus, in his most anguishing moment before going to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling over what he's going to do, goes to his disciples and says, can you please pray with me? What is he saying? I need you. And there are people that are saying to you, I need you. And some of us need to embrace the vulnerability and the weakness of the statement and say, I need you. I need you. I need others. For some of you, that I need you statement and belief is to start with Jesus. That we need Jesus. That life is not the life that it's supposed to be without Jesus. Without his saving, redeeming, forgiving work. And so I want to encourage you, maybe if it's your first time in church, or maybe first time in a long time, and maybe you're sitting here today, or maybe you're online and you're, you're like, I am so self-sufficient. I don't think I need Jesus. But, you, but, you, but there's something that's like, but I, I know what my self-sufficient life is offering, and it's not meeting deep, the deepest needs. See, our radical individualized culture says, live into your strongest desire. But Jesus is saying, I want to meet your deepest desire. And so for some of you here today, it is crossing a line of faith. And it is saying, Jesus, I need you. I trust you. I want to follow your way. You can simply receive the gift of grace by saying under your breath, Jesus, I need you. We want to live practically into the reality of, of needing Jesus by remembering what Jesus did on the cross, by taking communion together. And so if you would, grab your communion cup that you maybe received on your way in. If you did not receive a communion cup on your way in, you can just raise your hand and one of our host team will make their way to you and make sure that you get communion uh, so that you can take it together. We practice what we call open communion here at Mill City, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, encourage you to participate with us. It's not about membership in one particular church, but about belonging to the family of God. If you choose not to participate in communion with us, that's fine too. Jesus, a couple days before he goes to the cross, or the day before he goes to the cross, he finds himself with his disciples, and he's, they're eating together. And, and that's where we get the uh, understanding of communion, this breaking of bread and sharing of juice and in this particular at this particular table was Judas Judas betrayed Jesus and yet he was welcomed at the table of God see Jesus offers belonging to all to sinners and outcasts and the poor and the wealthy and the and the Judases and the and those who are at each other's throats as many of his disciples could have been and and so so when we come to the table and we recognize it's not just for us or the people who think like us or like you, it is a reminder of us to 
think about maybe somebody who we are at odds with. The scripture says that we are to examine ourselves before we're take, to take communion together. And so I wonder if we can take just a few seconds for some personal confession. Maybe you would be able to identify envy or judgment or self-sufficiency. Or maybe, maybe you can think of somebody that you need to forgive or maybe you need to work, work towards peace with them. Will you just offer that to God? Some, or maybe it's somebody who you think shouldn't be at the table. They don't deserve to be at the table. They don't think right, vote right, act right. But God welcomes everyone to the table of grace. So just give you a few seconds, let the Holy Spirit bring those things to mind and if you'd offer them in confession to God. St. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, talks to them about communion, and he says in chapter 11, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim God's grace. So if you would, let's take the bread and the juice together and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much you initiated a rescue plan, culminates in Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for coming and giving your life away, showing us what it looks like to be truly human, giving your, your life away on the cross, experiencing the agony, pain, and suffering so that we might have life, so we might have forgiveness of sins, your salvation work isn't just about personal forgiveness of sins. It's about bringing, breaking down walls of hostility and making us siblings in a loving family. And so for each one of us here today, I pray that you would give us a diligence and a perseverance to work towards loving family, loving one another, loving our enemies, working through difficulties, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. Bring those things to mind. Help us to take the low road and be humble and serve and pray for and be willing to be wrong. God, we need you and we need each other. Help that to be not just an idea in our heads, but a belief in our lives. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said,